As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm, I'm Tim Watt and I'm joined by my dad, John. Hi, Dad. Hi, it's good to be here. And we're really pleased to say we have a guest this week, uh, dialing in all the way across the Atlantic from Canada. Um, that's Sephora Tang. Hi, Sephora. Hello. Uh, we're really excited to have you on the show today. Um, you're a psychiatrist. Um, you're going to be helping us talk a little bit about uh, the situation around assisted suicide um, in Canada. Do you want to just briefly explain to listeners who you are? What do you do in the day job? How did you first get involved in this whole conversation around euthanasia? Sure. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, so I work in Ottawa, capital of Canada. I'm a psychiatrist and also an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa. I work at the uh, Ottawa Hospital and I mainly receive referrals in the outpatient clinic. So we, we have an urgent care clinic receiving referrals from our emergency department and from people who have been recently discharged from the inpatient unit as well as um, acting as a consultant service to other medical specialties within the hospital that needs a psychiatric assessment in the outpatient department. Brilliant. And so I suppose as part of your your job dealing with, with people experiencing kind of mental health problems, the, the kind of legalization of assisted suicide in Canada, I think that was 2016 that the law was first changed, must have had quite a significant impact in, in your work. Yeah, so I've been following this uh, issue for a long time now, ever since I was a medical student. Actually, I was in the Supreme Court House um, in 2015 uh, for the Carter case. Um, I skipped class. That was my I was my last year of training in residency, and I skipped my morning class to attend that court hearing because I knew that this was going to be very significant. And I remember walking out of that courthouse, not knowing what the the outcome would be, but just knowing that something very significant had just happened. And then after that, uh, 2016, that was when the Canadian government changed the law uh, with Bill C-14 to allow for uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia for the terminally ill, people whose death, what they call was reasonably foreseeable at that time. And ever since then, we've seen this gradual expansion of the law where in 2021 of March, March 2021, the government um, expanded the law to allow for people who were not at their end of life or whose death were not reasonably foreseeable. Um, And at that time, they also gave us two years, which was supposed to come up in March 
2022 to also allow uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide for those with mental illness as a sole underlying criteria. Now this, this came as a bit of a surprise because when Bill C-7 first came out, um, the health minister had explicitly excluded mental illness as an underlying criteria, recognizing the, the complexity of this. But during the study, um, there was a lot of pressure coming from the Senate chamber to include mental illness as a eligibility criteria. Now coming up to March 2022, we were supposed to now uh, be able to allow this for people with solely mental illness. Um, there was significant pushback from all 17 medical schools uh, saying that the Canadian system was not ready for this by March 2022. There has been no training. Um, we don't really know what we're going to do or how this is going to roll out. So the government did listen this time and said, okay, we're going to um, postpone this expansion to a, a yet, as of yet, undetermined date. Um, and hopefully within this time during this pause, before we go ahead with this, I'm hoping that this will allow us for more time to study and really consider this this issue seriously. I mean, I, I agree that if March it was just a couple of months away, and it's true that our system is, is definitely not right to take, is not ready to um, consider all the complexities of this issue to be able to roll it out. Um, I, I certainly believe that there will be many lives who um, Canadian society had not intended to have this a law to have this law applied to who who will die as a result of it. Um, so I think the stakes are, are pretty weighty right now and um, a significant amount of prudence and caution is needed. So just to step back a bit, um, I've always been fascinated by what's been happening in Canada be because um, as most people know, we, we don't have uh, any equivalent kind of law here in the UK, uh, but we are also having a continual pressure here in the UK to legalise some form of medical killing. And often uh, we're pointed towards particularly Oregon, the state of Oregon, as being the kind of ideal uh, comparator. And of course there are all sorts of concerns about what's going on in Oregon. But personally, I'm convinced that Canada represents a much closer model to what might happen here if a similar law was passed mm -hmm. here. And, and I think that's partly because we share this kind of liberal, um, socialised uh, culture. We have a very strong emphasis on the rule of law, on bureaucracy, on procedure. Um, and we have a, a nationalized health service where we're very concerned again about procedures, protocols, uh, care pathways, uh, avoiding what's called, um, in the UK it's called a postcode lottery where you get different um, treatments depending on where you live. This is universally regarded as a bad thing. We've got to make sure that everything is standardized across the country, which of course in the States, that's a complete nonsense. The States goes mm -hmm. exactly in the opposite way. So uh, do, you, do you see that? I mean, would you see Canada in some way as representative of, of many Western liberal democratic societies? 
Um, I would say yes. I, there's one question that I wanted to pose to you. I don't know if you really understood how the law came to be in Canada because this, this was not a democratic process, um, how this was enacted. Actually, Parliament has again and again sided on the side of preserving life in medicine and not allowing this. And this was only overturned because um, of the Supreme Court of Canada uh, ruling that not providing um, assisted suicide would be discriminatory, well, actually not discriminatory, but that it was actually, um, it it violated the constitutional freedoms of the right to life, uh, ironically, in our country with the Charter. Um, and so they, they said that this, <laughs> it violated a person's ability to remain alive because you know, that point case was, um, I, well, actually, if I go back to 1993, it was super egregious with um, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, but for some people with motor neuron uh, illnesses, they essentially become paralyzed. And so the thinking was, these people may choose to end their life uh, voluntarily uh, with assistance or without actually, no, if there wasn't any assistance, they would do it on their own while they were still physically capable. And so we would deprive them of life um, because they would actually have lived longer if they felt that somebody could assist their death uh, when they were no longer physically capable of doing that. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that because it's very interesting how now if we're moving towards mental illness, this argument isn't going to apply because most people who have mental illness are not physically incapacitated uh, to commit suicide. Yeah, no, no, thanks for pointing that out. Um, are we? It's interesting because of exactly the same arguments have been made here in the UK that to say that people with uh, motor neurone disease, but severe neurological conditions, motor neurone disease, multiple sclerosis, uh, and, and so on, that they, if they come to such an advanced stage of their disease, uh, that they are physically incapable of committing suicide, and therefore, legally, there has to be a recourse for these people to allow them to be um, for, for a doctor to kill them effectively because they can't kill themselves. And this case has been made repeatedly um, here in the UK, and it has gone to the Supreme Court to the highest. Uh, levels, but so far in the UK, the Supreme Court has said this is ultimately a matter for Parliament. There has to be this is mm -hmm. of such implication that there has to be a matter of primary legislation within Parliament. But there are certainly voices making the same case. So it's it, the, and this is often called judicial activism, isn't it? It's the idea that the judges take control because they say you politicians. Uh, you can never get your act together. Um, it's the judges ultimately who have to make these these cases. But I, I so I think it is analogous. It's just that in the end, our judges have so far uh, moved in a slightly different direction. But I think it could change. I mean, a, a Supreme Court has certainly uh, looked at these issues and is continuing to do so. So it, it, it's fascinating to see the parallels. But when when MAID was first then legalized in Canada, as you say, it wasn't, it didn't specifically allow um, euthanasia for mental illness in itself. Um, you had to have some other condition, didn't you? You had to have 
um, some, uh, some, some physical condition. In practice, how was that law being interpreted by physicians? Well, I think when the, the law came out in 2016, so the Supreme Court punted this back to Parliament and said, we're going to remove the criminal prohibition on assisted suicide and euthanasia for uh, you know specific parameters. Parliament had to come up with Parliament had the responsibility for coming up with what these parameters were, and so originally they felt that they needed to strike a balance um, between allowing for an exemption for very specific cases um, that were supposed to be exceptionally rare, um, and also protecting the public. Um, because I think there's a huge societal impact when we make laws that allow for the deliberate termination of life of individuals and actually allowing a physician to be able to do this with impunity. Uh, so at that time when Parliament put in this clause to say uh, it has to be for patients whose deaths are, are reasonably foreseeable, this was felt to be essentially a safeguard um, to prevent this from being expanded to include, you know, the whole population, right? I, I think a lot of, you know, if you were to look at public opinion, I think um, there are actually a lot of people who are supportive of the original law of 2016 if you were to leave it at the end of life. That was sort of the public understanding of it and, and how to make it more palatable to the regular listener. Um, however, in practice, not uh, the the death being not being reasonably foreseeable. Sorry, that wasn't actually clearly defined. There was no time period, and so it, the doctors could be like, "Well, you could be dying in you know in a few days," versus well, three months, six months from death, that's close enough. Your your death is uh, reasonably foreseeable. I mean, if, if you look at it that way, all of our deaths are reasonably foreseeable. We all know that we're going to die at one point. And Life so is a terminal condition after all. <laughs> that, that's right. I don't think any of us have escaped that. So, um, so where do you really draw the line at that point? And it becomes really subject to the um, assessment of that individual physician making that determination of what is acceptable and, and what is not. And there is a huge spectrum of opinions on what this could be. So all a person would need to do is uh, find a group of physicians who are a little bit more lax and liberal or lenient in their um, ideas of, of what would be acceptable. Um, and then this, even this safeguard that they had tried to implement at the very beginning, it doesn't hold a lot of water. I'm really interested in this because as you say, I did a little bit of reading a few years ago about how the, the medical assistance in dying or MAID, as we're probably going to call it, laws kind of came into force. And as you say, it was similar to the UK. It was a series of kind of quite tragic cases of people with very serious terminal illnesses who were kind of, some of them had had to travel to Switzerland, I believe, to, to, to kind of pursue assisted suicide overseas. And, and um, you know, when the question is phrased like that, quite a lot of the public feel compassion for these people and, and feel like maybe there should be the chance for them to take their own lives. But then as very quickly as, you, as you've as you been explaining, it's been expanded and expanded and is now, you know, in theory will soon be offered to people who could be young, physically healthy, um, experiencing, I don't know, maybe depression or, or schizophrenia, which are not 
necessarily life-limiting diseases. You know, you could live for 30, 40, 50 years experiencing depression, or you'll know better than me. How does the public respond to that expansion? Is that being driven by activists and by kind of a hardcore of committed pro-euthanasia doctors, or actually have the general Canadian public kind of move from their position of this is fine, but only for the very, very severely terminally ill? I think that the the general public has probably been caught unaware of some of the activism that is happening to pursue this expansion. And I think if you were to ask the a, a random person on the street about what their opinion is of this, they would probably be quite shocked that we have gone this quickly um, and this far, uh, seemingly without a lot of um, consultation. And even during the, the parliamentary hearings, it seemed as though the side that had concerns about further expansion were not really taken seriously. Uh, we've had many disability advocates, um, psychiatric professionals, uh, doctors, who have voiced their concerns about the impact of expansion on appropriate service provision um, for the lives of vulnerable patients who do not have access to housing, for example, who are living in financial poverty. So all of these social determinants of health that can drive a person's desire to have a hastened death because they're living a, a painful life and they want to have an escape from that, which is essentially what suicide is about. The law does not adequately protect. And as you've seen in some uh, media cases that have come out, there have been people who have been driven by social poverty to receive MAID. And I find that absolutely appalling that in a, a country that is supposed to be civilized and developed and has a social system to help people who are disadvantaged, that we would be quicker to offer death as a solution to these people rather than coming together as a community to try to provide the care that these people need. to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And it's interesting, isn't it, because there, there are so many facets of this, what's going on. Um, I mean, one thing that occurs to me is just how difficult it is to write a law which can encompass all the different possible um variations and, and so on and it's interesting when you look at different countries that have legalized some form of medical killing you know around the world they've all got slightly different wordings about you know hopeless and unbearable suffering or about uh, a terminal condition or assisting the dying process or they say you've got to have six months less than six months to live um, and uh, they all reflect the fact that in reality it's actually almost impossible to write a law which is watertight, which actually provides appropriate 
concern. So I, I think that's one interesting thing just about medical law in general. How, uh, and, and, it, and it does seem like Canada is a textbook case. Once you get this law written, then all the lawyers get together and say, well, reasonably foreseeable. Now, how could we interpret that? And, you know, and how long did this person live? Now we've got case law that says that this person received it. So if that person received it, then this person, and so on. It, you can, the lawyers get to work and it's, it's, it's almost impossible, isn't it? Uh, but I think just the other thing I wanted to flag up is, is that it's very interesting to me that we've now live in a sort of social culture where pain and suffering is seen as entirely negative. It, it doesn't have any kind of positive or, or even redemptive or other aspects. It is simply utterly destructive, utterly mm -hmm. negative. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is to stop it happening. Mm -hmm. And if that means that sadly you need mm -hmm. to give a lethal injection to this person in terrible social circumstances, so be it. it. At least it stops the suffering. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just respond to that previous comment and then your second comment. But I, th I think what you said just illustrates that, you know, some of these cases that are, are very exceptional and, and they really highlight the, the human experience of suffering and then using death as a, a solution uh, to, to justify death in those situations. I think what's happening in Canada it highlights the fact that even though a lot of the arguments have been based on these very rare exceptional cases, when you try to apply this as a blanket policy to the population as a whole, it can have very serious unintended consequences. And you're right, it's very difficult to craft a law that can take into account all of the, the nuances. Um, it, even within mental health, there are certain conditions that should be treated differently from others simply by the nature of it. And I think, especially in mental health, when we do not have a clear understanding of some of the path pathophysiology behind some of the ways the patients present, um, we need to we need to proceed very cautiously. So I, I've been furthering my, my training in learning more about trauma and the effects of that. And um, there's something, there's a disorder called uh, dissociative identity disorder, for example, or just dissociations in general, where um, because of past traumas, a person may, you know, part of their, their personality actually splits off and they may say and do things that they actually do not remember after the fact as a protective mechanism. So how much of this is like, uh, you know, a physiological um, phenomena? How do we really understand this? How does the, the mind actually work to allow a person to present this way? And if we, even as a psychiatrist, I'm only starting to touch the tip of the iceberg about some of these things. And so how can you expect somebody who is not trained or even somebody within psychiatry? Uh, to be honest, I didn't have a lot of training in my residency training program about some of these things. And we are making so many advances every year just to learn more about these things. We're learning new things all the time. Um, but if you are not aware that this is a phenomenon that could happen, somebody could be presenting before you who has expressed suicidal ideations, but this could be simply a part of them when they're dysregulated um, that is expressing that. So if you're just doing a you know, cross-sectional uh, cross assessment of this person, you could be missing a lot of things, right? Especially if you're not aware that this could be happening. Um, borderline personality, for example. It's very alarming to me that um, I think in the Netherlands, um, they had done a, a study and there were people with personality disorders who were approved for uh, an assisted death. And I remember doing a talk once about these issues and somebody 
came up to me after to thank me for my talk, and she told me that she actually had borderline personality disorder. And she was glad that I had mentioned this in the talk because she's lived through experiences where on certain days, she just really wants to die. Mm -hmm. And in that Mm -hmm. moment, nothing would have convinced her that living was still worth it. Um, And so we know that there are these fluctuations in how a person presents um, that are different in specific mental illnesses compared to other mental illnesses. And so to try to treat all of these different presentations in the same way is very difficult to do. And second, well, then I was going to to respond to the the second comment about, um, you know, sort of losing the meaning um, about suffering, that we need to eliminate suffering, that suffering itself is something terrible and we should never tolerate that. Um, And I just want to share a a personal story that I had um, when I was in high school and undergrad university. I had a very close family friend who himself was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, which is a neurodegenerative disorder, actually the same disorder that Sue Rodriguez had in the 1993 Supreme Court case in Canada. And so eventually... Um, what this illness does is it it paralyzes the person so that they're no longer able to move their voluntary muscles. Um, And I started to visit this individual. He was very bright. He was a professor at the university. Um, But I recognized that he was going through um, a very difficult time, obviously. He was losing his physical ability to function to the point where towards the end he could not even speak. So he was communicating to me using um, technology where he could tap out letters with his eyes and it would be fed through uh, text-to-speech. And so this required a lot of patience (laughs) to allow him to take that time to communicate. Um, And I often wondered today if he had been alive today and, you know, the political context is the way that it is and he could have opted for an assisted death, I wonder what he would have chosen But I know from my experience with him that even in that state, he was very committed to his wife. Um, He was still able to oversee the household. He was still learning languages, (laughs) Spanish. Even towards the end, his mind was still sharp and he still found ways of wanting to continue living and still making the most out of that, that time. And this experience for me where I would visit him every week Um, throughout my university experience was so uh, profoundly moving for me and it had such a big impact on my life to know that somebody who was facing something you know medically and physically um, would for most people would be horrifying right but I, I learned so much from him that even when life seems really unbearable um and when you're facing insurmountable challenges that it is still possible to find reasons to continue living. And he would not have been able to teach me this message had he not walked that experience, right? Mm, Absolutely. Mm. And I think, you know, as a physician, um, having had these experiences as a psychiatrist, it's part of my job to be able to help people in a creative way to find meaning in their life suffering, to find reasons for continuing to live despite their circumstances. Their circumstances might not change externally, but the shift that we can have internally is what can make the difference for some people between wanting to choose to live 
and losing hope and, and wanting to die. Hmm. I was going to say, I found it really um, fascinating and, and, and concerning, I think, hearing you talk about uh, earlier about um, kind of suicide ideation in, in certain mental health conditions, which, you know, is not an uncommon symptom of, of, of people experiencing mental health uh, problems, as you'll know much better than me. And I guess what is kind of so remarkable to me watching what's happening in Canada is that maybe as recently as 10 years ago, there was a kind of tacit assumption in society that that while we have compassion for people who are feeling suicidal as a result of, of mental health problems, um, we always believe firmly for them that suicide is not the right thing to do and that as a society we will work to try and protect them from themselves bluntly um, and, and that was a kind of conviction that went back probably thousands of years probably um, uh, across most of the kind of uh, western world at least that, that, that no matter how much kind of torment and anguish you're in and no matter how much to the individual taking their own life was the the best way out of it we as a society and certainly doctors had a job to say actually you know it might feel unsustainable but I, I'm here to tell you that it, it can get better and that there is options and you have options and and now that's kind of in a heartbeat is gone because you know you could have someone who was having a very severe bout of depression they go and see a doctor and rather than the doctor kind of protect them from themselves they can have no confidence that the doctor will say all right well we'll assess you for maid get that done in a fortnight and you could be dead by the end of the month Yes, I mean, this is definitely a concern and one of the reasons why I feel like if this is something that society wants, you know, as assisted death, I don't think that it should be integrated into the, the medical profession itself um, in order to create those safe spaces for patients so that they know uh, what to expect when they see their healthcare professional. Um, that they're not going to be induced in a moment of weakness to to believing that suicide is an appropriate uh, solution to their life suffering when their physician may be the only, you know, consistent support that they could have. Um, and I think as a medical professional, it's, you know, I, I've drawn a line in the sand to say this is a line that I must not cross because I'm actually quite aware of the vulnerabilities of physicians as human beings to know how it feels to feel helpless in the face of suffering. And it is so easy to cross that line and say, I totally get where you're coming from. And I feel like I don't have a solution for you. And so just to cross that line and to help you end it, that is, that is very seriously tempting. And how we, there's something called a, a countertransference that we study in psychiatry. And this is how the patient makes the, the therapist feel. And so oftentimes, a patient that's coming in feeling super depressed and super hopeless, the therapist themselves can then start to feel helpless <laughs> and hopeless. And so how much of the physician's acquiescence to a patient's request to assist them to die comes from unknown countertransference that we may not be aware of? Uh, so, you know, I think that there needs to be other factors involved if, if society is going to do this, like you, you shouldn't just leave it up to that individual physician to make that determination um, because of these power differentials, right? And so that is the reason why you need to have at least two assessors to do this just to make sure that the physician themselves are, are not biased. 
Yeah, that's um, that's really striking. And um, unfortunately, we run out of time for, for our episode today. Um, but we're going to continue next week speaking with um, Dr. Sephora Tang um, from Ottawa to hear more about her experience um, of, of treating patients and, and living in a healthcare system where where assistance in dying is an option. Um, so do, do come back next week. Looking forward to resuming that conversation. Um, but thanks for listening to Matters of Life and Death um, today. Um, as always, if you're interested in, in kind of reading a bit more about assisted suicide, there's some material that John's uploaded to his website. That's johnwyatt.com. And uh, you can also get in touch with us if you'd like to uh, ask any questions or suggest uh, people we could speak to in the podcast in the future. Um, you can email us. Uh, that's molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, um, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll speak to you next week, uh, resuming our conversation with Sephora Tang. Hello, Tim here. Just before we go, I wanted to let you know we're planning a special episode in the next month or so to mark the one-year anniversary of relaunching Matters of Life and Death as part of the premier Unbelievable Network. We're going to be dedicating an episode, or maybe even two, to answering questions from you, our listeners. They can be on any topic, perhaps something you've heard us talk about over the last year that you'd like to go deeper into, or maybe instead there's a new development in the news or science that you'd be interested to hear us chat about. We can't promise to answer every question we get, but we're definitely going to try to squeeze in as many as possible into this special omnibus episode. Nothing's out of bounds, so do get in touch now by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death. A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.